I love it when people quit their shitty jobs, when they've built up enough courage or they're tired enough to say they're done and they go off and do something else. I love hearing that story. I will naturally gravitate to someone at a party when they're telling it. The shittier the job and the better their backup plan, the more intensely I'll feed vicariously off their story. I think it's because I did a similar thing a few years ago and it was a great decision. It reminds me of how liberated I felt and I'm excited for them too. There's also something really, really infectious about seeing someone make that decision, particularly when you've heard all the work sagas and know about all the times their boss made them stay late without a thank you, you know, the usual shit. Now, this person is standing in front of you lighter and feeling that weird mix of anxious and excited for whatever they're doing next. I love it. Bottle that and I will drink it daily. This episode is about workism. You might be familiar with the term, you might not be. I guarantee a lot of people listening right now will be in the grip of this, possibly without realising it even has a name. Workism is a stunningly new term, but not entirely a new idea. According to Google Trends, people only started searching for workism in any kind of decent number in late February, early March 2019. That's because Derek Thompson wrote a piece in The Atlantic called Workism is Making Americans Miserable. It went very viral. I reached out to Derek because he seems to have kicked most of this off, uh, but he didn't get back to me. So I'll read you a bit of the article instead. There is nothing wrong with work when work must be done. And there is no question that an elite obsession with meaningful work will produce a handful of winners who hit the workist lottery. Busy, rich and deeply fulfilled. But a culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salaried jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment and inevitable burnout. It's a great article, so interesting. There's a link to it in the episode description and on the sources page at that'scult.com. Derek Thompson's Atlantic article begins with a prediction that was made by economist John Maynard Keynes in 1930. By the 21st century, we'd have a 15-hour work week and a five-day weekend. Well, yeah, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that that has not happened. Workism is the belief that work is our identity. It's more than just an income and a way to fill the day. Working long hours and committing ourselves almost entirely to our work will bring us enlightenment and meaning. Derek Thompson refers to it as the gospel of work at one point, and while he says long hours culture began with wealthy men, workism has trickled down to all kinds of people in all kinds of jobs, on all kinds of salaries, as well as freelancers and solo entrepreneurs experiencing varying degrees of success. This is a different community to pretty much everything we've explored before because a lot of us don't realise we're in it. We don't intentionally join, it's not a subreddit. It's actually very individualistic, but we find ourselves consumed by it together, side by side. Most of us don't consciously opt in, but it can be very difficult to opt out. How did pressing our nose against the grindstone become such a status symbol? Um, I own a uh, national moving company chain. Um, So I have four locations across the United States. And then on top of that, I have a uh, pool cleaning service and a call center service that books moves for other moving companies. This is Max Marr. As you heard, he's a business owner and he's a fairly regular contributor to subreddits like Our Entrepreneur, Our Sweaty Startup and Our Get Disciplined. He challenged himself to work 10 hours a day for 50 days in a row. No breaks, no weekends. I had a lot to do in a short period of time, so I figured I'd kind of turn it into a challenge and kind of see what my absolute limits were. I always spend a good amount of time at work every week, you know, 50, 60 hours. And I just really wanted to see how long I could go, basically. So I wanted like a new frame of reference. And by setting, you know, this far out goal of 50 days, I knew if I was able to hit it, then my my frame of reference for how much I can get done in a period of time would completely change. So every morning I'd wake up just before five, uh, eat, then head to the gym, um, go to my office, help the guys get ready for uh, you know their daily moves. There's always a bunch of chaos in the morning. From there, I'd stay and do some office work until mid-afternoon. And then during that, 
I uh, went out and I was doing like marketing work for my moving company to uh, spread the word, you know, just talk to people, uh, do sales type stuff out of the office. And I'd get home around like 7 or 8 p.m., play some piano, and then go to sleep and do it again for 50 days. You know, my number one motivation is, is trying to just be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. And uh, when I was putting that much effort and like literally leaving nothing on the table, I just felt like elated, like I was just getting so much done. Yeah, I felt tired and you know, I, uh, I had to like turn down some social type stuff, but I knew that that wasn't gonna be, you know, forever. Max seems like a rare example. If workism really was a religion, he'd be one of those monks who lives on a mountain and has committed a vow of silence and can meditate on his big toe or whatever. There's no boss of the monastery making him do it and he doesn't fear the god or gods he believes in. It's his chosen self-improvement journey. Most of us, myself included, would struggle a lot to learn that level of discipline. I, for example, am currently on day three of my latest attempt at learning French on Duolingo. I definitely think it's, it's a muscle. You know, I haven't always been able to spend 10, 12 hours in a day in a focused mindset, but I have worked at that for, you know, over, over the last five or 10 years. I have always wanted to uh, just be the person who is constantly getting all these things done. I just realized that unless I'm doing my absolute most, there's someone else out there who would probably be doing more and uh, uh, will be, you know, excelling more than I am. So it's kind of a rare feeling to, to know that you've literally given your all. After these 50 days, what was day 51 like? What did you do? <laughs> well, I planned, uh, you know, a day of doing absolutely nothing, but then by like the afternoon, I was already working on a different project. So. It was already kind of back right at it. I get kind of, uh, you know, I just feel like I need to get stuff done constantly. It's important to make a bit of a distinction here. Workism isn't just pure hard work. It's not necessarily numbers of hours or numbers of days. It's making work intrinsic to who you are, your identity. It's not workaholism necessarily, though that's pretty common. It's I am what I do. In my interviews, I learned that the relationship between work and identity is rarely comfortable. For most, it's not a case of, I'm going to challenge myself to work 50 days in a row, doing it, and then a pat on the back when you've ticked it off. It wasn't even that simple for Max, as you'll hear later on. We're all struggling to define what is success and how much work is enough. In the words of mathlete Katie Heron, if work is linked to your self-image, the limit does not exist. So just to start, what's your relationship with work like, do you think? Are you work to live, live to work, or somewhere in between? Uh, it's been up and down. I would say right now it's, it's more of a, it's an in-between, but I'm not going to lie, you know, the past several years have been pretty much a, a, a work to live situation. This is Josh Mackey. He has a full-time job that he likes and cares about, and he's also got a pretty successful side business too. I found him on Red. Wow, do my neighbours want to be more annoyed today? A door slammed. I, if you didn't hear that, please ignore my passive aggression. I found him on Reddit. He was asking the entrepreneur community for advice and guidance because, in his words, he was burning out fast. It's, it's very hard to measure what you feel is successful nowadays. Like, how do you know you're successful? How do you know that things are going well? I, I have a full-time job where, you know, I put in eight to nine, ten hours, but then, you know, I'll be going home after that and focusing on the side business. You know, what do I have to do to keep that going? I could have a really good day where I get a lot done at, at, at both jobs, essentially, but you sit back and you go, am I still doing enough? I'm just constantly trying to move things forward, even if they are frustrating. I've had some really, really good days. I would have taken the side business to an event where we outsold probably every vendor there and had a really, really great day. The problem is it was probably a 14-hour day with equally long hours the day before and the day after to prepare for that event. 
So, you know, you feel great at the end of the day when you look at your numbers, but then you're completely exhausted. You know you were successful, but now you have to kind of regroup and do it all over again. So I think you can feel proud. I think I can feel proud about the things I've been able to do. But I think success is more or less, to me, not necessarily a feeling, but probably more of a comfort level, like being able to get to a position where you're not so constantly stressed about what's coming next. It gets to a point where you, you know the company is doing good or okay, but you're constantly putting in time and time and time to, to do it. And obviously if you have another full-time job, you're quickly burning yourself out. I think burnout in a way is being overwhelmed, so to speak. You know, your projects aren't going away. Your emails aren't stopping. I think it feels like defeat in a way that keeps pulling you down because you, you keep looking at it and it just keeps adding up and you just like, you don't know if you can get out of it. I think the seven days a week um, part was not sustainable. I think you at least need like some time to decompress. My ability to play piano definitely got a lot worse and also like short-term memory type stuff got a lot worse towards the end. After around like day 30 or day 35, my ability to just recall, you know, even like a conversation I had earlier in the day was getting worse and worse. Um, you know, probably had to do with some exhaustion and so many things going around in my head. But I noticed I had to write down a lot more to keep track of things. You know, it kind of go in waves. Some days would be a little worse than others, but um, it was a little freaky for sure. As of May this year, burnout is now a diagnosable thing. According to the World Health Organization, it's in their international classification of diseases. Symptoms of burnout include feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism. Wow, I didn't know negativism was a word. Or cynicism related to one's job and reduced professional efficacy. So basically, if work is making you so tired that you've become critical of your job and workplace and you're not even very good at it anymore, you could have burnout. I just started, um, I thought, recording like a good minute of, of stuff and I just hadn't even pressed record. Maybe I've got burnout. I don't. Like a lot of aspects of modern life, millennials come into this somewhere and there's no better place than here, really. Burnout is not in any way exclusive to millennials, but they keep coming up in articles and opinion pieces and studies when the word burnout is mentioned for good reason. BuzzFeed news reporter Anne-Helen Peterson called millennials the burnout generation in a very popular January 2019 essay for BuzzFeed. There's a link in the episode description and at thatscult.com. Very good read. She started noticing that small errands like booking appointments, dropping things off to be donated, vacuuming her car, etc. were increasingly hard for her to tick off and delaying them caused more and more anxiety. I contacted Anne for an interview and she, she was into the idea. We had a brief chat over email, but sadly she has banned herself from doing any interviews for a while because she's got a book to write. Fair enough. Here's a quote instead. It's not as if I was slacking in the rest of my life. I was publishing stories, writing two books, making meals, executing a move across the country, planning trips, paying my student loans, exercising on a regular basis. But when it came to the mundane, the medium priority, the stuff that wouldn't make my job easier or my work better, I avoided it. I realised that the vast majority of these tasks share a common denominator. Their primary beneficiary is me, but not in a way that would actually drastically improve my life. They are seemingly high effort, low reward tasks, and they paralyse me. Anne spoke to other people around her age, millennials too, going through the same errand paralysis as she calls it. The more mundane it was, the more people seemed to put it off. Someone didn't register to vote, someone else left a parcel unmailed for over a year, someone else didn't return useless clothes that didn't fit them. Do you do this? Because I definitely do. I had this with a dentist appointment 
like I just didn't register at my local dentist for a year plus and I'm not like not interested in keeping my teeth healthy I do keep my teeth healthy but for some reason I just didn't ever ring up and like a week ago I was like fuck this I'm not doing this anymore I need a scale and polish and I called them and it was just easy so I felt like a bit of a dick to be honest but it's sorted now I hadn't considered this to be a symptom of burnout like Anne did she identified errand paralysis as part of her burnout and her belief that she should be, quote, working all the time. She also calls it the millennial, quote, base temperature, which is really interesting. Anne thinks that this happens because millennials are more likely to start work with a lot of student debt, low pay and lots of uncertainty, as well as a wish to be the best they can be. She calls it, quote, optimising ourselves. She says, quote, we put up with companies treating us poorly because we don't see another option. We don't quit. We internalise that we're not striving hard enough. So while I think this kind of rhetoric is sort of going away a bit, millennials are and have been called lazy and entitled. But according to an article in the Boston Globe from December 2016, that's pre the workism article, quote, four in ten millennials consider themselves work martyrs, dedicated, indispensable and racked with guilt if they take time off. And crucially, millennials want to be seen that way too. It's not enough to just be it. It needs to be acknowledged and noticed. Listen, just a side note, I know that these broad names for generations are a bit tedious and I'm not a fan really, but they are everywhere. They're in the dialogue. They're in the articles. We just, I think we just have to go with it occasionally and listen to it and see if it does tell us anything about the world. And I think in this case it does. Also, one of my favourite films is Spotlight. So when I saw Boston Globe, I got excited. When work is everything and you constantly feel like you have a lot to prove, there's not much room for anything else. Even going to the post office. I don't think I've always been a live-to-work person at all, but recently I think I have been, especially since I became single, it was ended up being a big part of my identity. And I don't think I'm industrious in the, a capitalist way. I'm trying to get into academia and a specific subfield that's very critical of capitalism, even as I'm trying to like grind till I own it, I'm also having like a reflexive critical conversation with my own work habits. This is Hannah. Much like Josh Mackey, who we met before, she turned to Reddit for advice too. This time, her question was a bit more abstract, harder to answer and completely subjective. What does it mean to work hard? Do I really have to work eight hours to feel like I'm doing enough? And I find that I do. That's the only way that I really feel like I'm working hard enough is when I'm working a lot. So when um, you're working well and successfully and it's going pretty good, how do you feel? I feel great. I feel, I definitely feel like better about myself. I think work is very tied with self and identity and it's almost like you know if you're not doing well at work you're not doing well at life a lot of people share that feeling and then when I you know slack off or whatever I often feel like I have lower self-esteem or I say to myself like okay like we have to figure out how we're gonna you know work harder tomorrow I'm going to make a list. I'm going to be productive. Right now, I'm lucky enough to be doing work that is directly relevant to my future goals. I'm working for a professor as a research assistant, and I'm working on my master's thesis. And in the past, when I've had to work like shitty jobs, I, well, I worked at a cheese shop at one point, and I've done a few serving jobs, and one receptionist job you're dispensable people don't see service workers as being worth anything or as being smart or hardworking. it affected me and I think it affects a lot of people 
I also spent spent a few years um, working as a farm worker. That tied into my identity in terms of you know being an activist uh, for a better food system. You know, I felt really good about what I was doing, but at the same time, doing any work that isn't like intellectually stimulating and isn't respected by society or respected by like family members. You know, I had a lot of, well, why are you doing that? Like you could do something better, you know? So um, how you feel internally is really important as well as how other people would perceive you for doing that particular job. Cause it sounds like you've done the full, pretty much the full spectrum. I feel very lucky to be doing what I'm doing now. It's what I've been wanting to do for a long time. Did you hear Hannah quote that Beyonce lyric, grind till I own it? There's a whole language around workism and this is exactly it. All these mantras about working hard, working harder than anyone else have become legitimised decor and design choices. They're on wall art and water bottles and notebooks. Girl boss, hustle and grind, work harder, keep hustling. Okay, that was my grandma texting me. Okay, let's stop that. I searched hustle in Etsy because I was curious about how marketable this is. And there are 246 pages of t-shirts, water bottles, prints, mugs, and more focused on hustling, grinding, working. Full disclosure, I have a gray t-shirt that says gold digger on it. I I don't wear it out. I can't even wear it in the gym anymore, which arguably is the only place it's appropriate. These coveted phrases we see on coffee cups and notebooks, why do we want to identify with them? Why do we want people to know that we subscribe to them enough to have them printed on something? Because just having a notebook that says, you've got this, doesn't mean you have, but maybe it feels like you do. In a February 2019 article for the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, Godful, Joseph Sund wrote that, quote, The basic source of our growing cultural anxiety is worship of the self. Now, it's important to remember he's writing from a quite religious standpoint, which I'm not ever. But I think he's right in that we do often work hard for ourselves and to prove things to ourselves, to define ourselves. There are all kinds of secondary reasons that involve other people, but for the workist, it's mainly about me. The New York Times goes a bit further though, because hustle culture is very convenient for the people who pay us. Writer Erin Griffith visited a WeWork co-working space in New York, there's a lot of these WeWork places around, and found it full of neon signs and cushions promoting constant work, basically branding it for their own ends. There was apparently even don't stop when you're tired, stop when you're done carved into cucumber in the water cooler. In Erin's words, and I fucking love this quote, Kool-Aid drinking metaphors are rarely this literal. It seems like the only way to get some control back is to be able to recognise when enough work is enough for you and to find meaning in other things at the same time. Work can't be the source of everything. In her New York Times piece, Erin Griffith spoke to a consultant called Bernie Klinder, who had a very cold but very realistic way of summing it up. If I drop dead tomorrow, all of my acrylic workplace awards would be in the trash the next day, and my job would be posted in the paper before my obituary. So okay, we buy the notebooks. But let's not pretend we're the sole decision makers when it comes to workism. Many of us have an employer who sets the tone. Great. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, your sound is perfect. Thank you. All right, let me just get my phone off because otherwise I might get phone calls while we're in the <laughs> middle of this. And then the mobile, every damn device in the world. <laughs> when we're going to talk about it's that, life, I'm sure. It? It's full of bloody devices. Okay, <laughs> we're ready to go anytime you are. This is, get ready for some titles, Professor Sir Carrie Cooper. He's the director and founder of Robertson Cooper, a team of business psychologists and well-being specialists who are passionate about creating good days at work for everyone, everywhere. 
He's also the 50th Anniversary Professor of Organisational Psychology and Health at the University of Manchester Business School. The, the, the concept of excessive availability to work is just being always on. And that means having your mobile phone on all the time, your smartphone on all the time, being available 724 while you're on holiday at night. It's an extension of workaholism. Oh, it's a part of workaholism because workaholism is where people, in a sense, are almost addicted by work. They've had success and that reinforces it. And therefore, they want to be on. They don't want to miss anything and they want to be connected all the time, telling everybody that you are on. You know, don't worry, call me any time of the day or email and any time of the day. And that is really not good for you. And, and the evidence is mounting. There's a whole field now called techno stress. It's looking at what the impact of technology is having on your health and well-being and your relationships. So that means emails, social media, all of that. Are you addicted to it? Is it a major part of your life? And are you accessing it 724? There are two new concepts. One is called presenteeism and the other is called leaveism. Presenteeism is because of the insecurity that was generated by the recession, more of a depression than a recession. And we had it for a reasonably long period of time. During that period of time, lots of people lost their job. What ended up happening from then, even until today, is people feel so insecure that they want to show FaceTime. So they come to the office early, they stay late, they want to be present. They also, by the way, want to be present through the virtual world, through emails and other media. So they'll send emails at night to their boss just to show that they are they're present and still working at 10 o'clock at night. But primarily it means showing FaceTime in the office, being there all the time, even if you have not that much to do. Leavism is a slightly different concept. Dr. Ian Hesketh, who is my PhD student, and I discovered it when we're doing work with the police, where we found quite a lot of police took holiday time, i.e. leave time, to catch up on their work, but didn't tell their employer. So they'd say they're going off to Spain. And actually what they did is went home and tried to do all the paperwork to get the work done. And we thought, well, maybe just idiosyncratic to the particular force we were looking at. And then we broadened it and found it was in a range of public sector jobs that was the case. Yes, that is an ambulance going past my house at the exact moment that Carrie Cooper was talking about emergency services. Yeah. And then we extended even further to the private sector, and we found there are a lot of people doing that. So what they're doing is they're using their leave time to actually get catch up on their work and do their work, but not telling their employer that necessarily all they're doing, because they don't want the employer to know they're not coping. Again, it's an insecurity-driven thing. Presenteeism already has been costed by uh, the economists at the Sainsbury Center for Mental Health. It's now called the Center for Mental Health. They estimated that presenteeism in terms of direct costs, mental health costs and the like, are double the cost of absenteeism because it's a kind of hidden iceberg. They're turning up to work ill. They're turning up to work job dissatisfied. They're turning up to work and showing FaceTime, but delivering no added value to the product or service. It's actually having a damaging effect on their health and on their productivity and on their relationships at home. I think there's quite a lot of organizations who think that working long hours and overburdening people uh, will develop them and get the most out of them. The evidence is clear. I did a meta-analysis for the health and safety executive a number of years ago now, and indeed I wrote a edited a book with a colleague, another professor from Canada, looking at the long hours culture. We looked at what was an edited volume of academics across the world. And we came up with a conclusion looking at the evidence from the Far East, North America, Europe, etc., that consistently working long hours, and that means just over 40, can damage your health. We know it has that impact. There are no studies which show that consistently look, working long hours makes you more productive, just makes you ill. Yes, you have to work long hours occasionally during a particular week. I'm talking about consistently creating a culture, but there's no way you can walk out till at least six or seven o'clock at night and they expect you in at eight in the morning. There are organizations that have that kind of culture 
are not doing it deliberately, not that they think it's good, but people feel insecure. And it's up to the senior management to make people feel more secure. And that's why they're doing well-being programs, because the biggest cost to them is labor turnover. Those kinds of cultures don't deliver to the bottom line and people leave. We're seventh in the G7 and 17th in the G20 on productivity per capita. We're poor. So being, I mean, being stressed and overworked for some has become a status symbol. I mean, I don't know if this is something that you've studied or you know anything about or you've wondered about. Yes, but what, yes. Why is yeah, I know, that? I know what you're getting at. Yeah. What you're getting at is, um, are you busy, Carrie? Oh, God, yeah, I'm really yeah. loaded. Oh, boy, yeah. You know, like it's great. Exactly. Like it's a wonderful thing. No, it is not good. The recession meant organizations to be competitive in the global downturn. They had to have lower labor costs. So they had to sweat their human assets. And that's what they did. They had fewer people doing more work, feeling more job insecure and being way overloaded and interfering with their home life. As Carrie said, there's a huge stack of evidence demonstrating that being always on and always working or even just prepared to be always working is incredibly bad for us and doesn't even have the desired effect on productivity. In the UK, we have, quote, the highest proportion of employees working more than 50 hours a week out of all Western European nations, but we're one of the least productive. Apparently the French can achieve more in four days than we do in five. There's also plenty of incredibly depressing stuff across the pond. One story really stood out to me. According to Claire Kane Miller in the New York Times, working age women in the US are the most educated they've ever been but they're increasingly shut out of higher paid jobs because they're less able to make themselves constantly available, which so many of these employers expect. So their husband is generally the one to work longer hours and the woman does even more childcare. So workism is potentially going to maintain the gender pay gap or make it worse. And then just over a week ago now, my country's new shit for brains Prime Minister Boris Johnson wrote in his newspaper column, which he's ludicrously overpaid for, that because Winston Churchill managed to distract himself from depression with hard work, so could we. I always describe it that I was on this conveyor belt of sort of getting good grades at school and then I did take a gap year but then university and then didn't know what job to do so I did another degree um, and then I took a job and so on and I feel like I just kind of ended up where I was in a way from the very first job that I took after university it wasn't where I thought I should be however great that job was it was a fantastic role very senior for someone who's coming straight out of university I met incredible people and um, got lots of training and I don't really regret it but it just wasn't that I'd dreamed of working in marketing or business and so on so I just kind of always had that disconnect to find out what happens when someone jumps off the conveyor belt and defines their own relationship with work, I spoke to Anna Lundberg. She's a business strategist and personal coach who quit her corporate job with no plan, went travelling and set up her own business. So I had this vague idea that I wanted to maybe travel more, um, have more flexible hours. I'd always wanted to be a writer, whatever that means. So I wanted to write more possibly start my own business but it was all very vague and it was taking a sabbatical to travel for three months I went to South America by myself that really helped me to sort of step out of my bubble step off that conveyor belt I guess and wake up to some alternative uh, career paths and, and ways of living I suppose so but I certainly didn't have a plan for what I was going to do when I left to be honest I had no idea what it meant to be entrepreneurial I um, registered my company at company's house for £12 or whatever it costs so officially I incorporated my business and that was sort of within a few months I'd say about four months five months maybe of leaving. I was very lucky in those first months so I got some pretty good big corporate clients quite quickly. Unfortunately it was still within the same kind of framework of traveling to the client's office Monday to Friday working overtime. After a couple of years of that I realized this is not why I quit this is not a big enough change. So then I went through what I call my hippie phase when I sort of rejected all of that whole corporate big client marketing work and, and I sort of packed up my bags and went off traveling. I trained and certified to be a coach which is something I'd never really heard of before and I started blogging and so on. So I sort of went in a different direction then after a couple of years. Three words I always use, and I, I love a bit of alliteration, but it happens to be freedom, flexibility, and fulfillment. 
there's something around I think having been to school all your life within this really rigid system um, you know being told what to do by your parents teachers society whatever this conveyor belt that I talk about there's something that suddenly we make up wake up in our mid-30s often and think hang on a second this is not what it's all cracked up to be I've been working towards these goals of getting these promotions and mortgages and whatever and it's not as meaningful as I thought flexibility is the other one flexible hours flexible location we still want to have meaningful work and ultimately make an impact in the world that's I think what a lot of people are waking up to they don't want to just sit and do powerpoint presentations and excel sheets and meetings and send emails we want to actually leave a legacy and you know make a positive difference in the world I was really interested to hear Anna talk about the fact that quitting her job was liberating, but didn't instantly give her the key to work-life balance and fulfilment. She still had to work out what freelancing had to involve to suit her life and make her happy. Like I said at the very start of the episode, it's that mixture of anxiety and uncertainty and excitement which makes that initial I quit my job moment so weirdly compelling. Maybe you've got a brilliant detailed plan, maybe you're gonna fuck off to another country, maybe you have no idea, I don't care, I'll still lean against the kitchen counter listening intently, gripping the stem of my Prosecco glass. So far, we've heard from a few different business owners who are used to, to a degree, setting their own schedule, some more than others. When you have a big chunk of time to do what you want with your working week, that can pose even more massive, difficult questions about how you spend it and how you work. When I first started freelancing, it was because I had to, basically. I wanted to, but I was pushed by circumstance, Um, so I was very much in the frame of mind of this has to work, I don't have an alternative. I spent the first year and a half working whenever I could, evenings, Saturdays, Sundays. Um, like Hannah, I was recent. there's an insect on my desk. What are you? Cast of a bug's life, I hear. I was recently single and lonely and quite mentally ill TBH, so I had time and I really wanted to mine it and make the most of it. Now my attitude to work is completely different. This is my fourth year as a freelancer. I never work weekends. I can't remember the last time. I only work evenings if I've got an urgent deadline, which is rare, or if I took some of the day off and want to replace it later on in the day. The main reason I changed my attitude and changed my schedule was because I wasn't any happier and business wasn't any better. It was kind of black and white, really. It also became clear that my reasons for sinking myself into work were, well, not healthy, not sustainable. Deep down, I wanted to stay busy because it was a choice between that or sit with some really uncomfortable feelings. Being busy establishing my freelance business turned out to be the perfect distraction from loneliness getting over a breakup, feeling purposeless, and all the other shit stuff many of us experience. When business was stable and good, I could have used it as an excuse to justify even more long hours, but thankfully, I could see it for what it was at that point, just how I make my living, and something I'm good at and want to keep being good at. No more, no less. But it's not that clear cut for everybody. I think for business owners and freelancers, anyone who works for themselves, basically, Workism has a slightly different flavour, but it's just as easy to sink into. Okay, I've interviewed um, well, 50 plus people now who've done career transitions from the corporate environment into setting up something on their own. Quite a few of them have had to, had to give up their job because of burnout. So some of us have quit our jobs precisely to have that freedom, flexibility, work less, um, do work we love and so on. And there's that cliche of if you find work that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And it's not true because it's still going to be work. Even if you're working flexibly, you're doing creative work that you love and so on, you still sometimes have to do some admin or accounting. You still have to do that call when you're really tired and you don't feel like it, whatever it is. The other cliche is when you're you are your own business. Taking care of yourself is taking care of your business because if I fall ill, in theory, you know, the business is not going to continue um, if I collapse with migraines or burnout or whatever it is. So we really have to think about, first of all, why did we start this business in the first place? And then secondly, even from a pure profit standpoint, it's not going to be sustainable if we um, keep hustling away and pushing ourselves too much again, even as a business owner. 
Anna has her own podcast called Reimagining Success, where she discusses what success looks like to different people and how you can redesign your own working life. There's a link in the description. Regardless of whether you work for someone else or for yourself, workism is very internal and introspective. That success barometer looks very different depending on your perspective. What someone else sees on the outside is really not very indicative of what could be going on in their own mind, their own calendar and their own self-image, and vice versa. When we look at someone who's still at their desk at 8pm and has a calendar stacked with meetings, their external productivity levels could be very different to what's actually going on internally. We all know or have worked with these people. They look like they're on top of it all and that they thrive off this shit, but inside they could be drowning, anxious and unsure how to stop. I wanted to understand what a business could look like if people dropped all this outward busyness. That's how I found Sam Sperlin. He works for a Washington DC based business called The Ready, which helps organisations become more adaptive, meaningful and human. Not long after the original Atlantic article was published, Sam wrote a piece of his own on Medium called It's Time for a Workism Reformation. His thinking was, if workism really is like a religion, then surely we can reform the way we commit to it and practice it. I, I tend to have an all-consuming relationship with work because I derive so much of my uh, my identity from the work that I do and the way uh, that I do it. You'll probably hear it in my voice as we talk about this. There's something about it that I um, is difficult for me to talk about because my experience with work is far more privileged than a lot of the examples uh, shared in in the the workism um, articles. You know, I I work a pretty white collar, knowledge worker type job. I'm generally very well paid for for what I do. Um, and even though that hasn't always been the case in in my history, um, I'm, I'm, I try to be cognizant of that when I talk about working hard. Like I'm not going to a coal mine every day. I'm not you know a single mother trying to work multiple part-time jobs to, to make ends meet um, and in my case I think in many in, in people similar to me it is a choice even though even if it doesn't feel like it I mean I think that's one of the interesting things going on here is that when you're really wrapped up in your identity in in your work it doesn't necessarily feel like you're making a choice it's just it, it's it's just what you do it's just how you are um, this is a quite a big <laughs> question, so feel free to say that you don't know. But why sure. do you think we glorify long hours and burnout so much in certain industries, particularly in these privileged industries? Gosh, that is a big question. Yeah. I think so. I don't know that there is one answer. I mean, one thing that I've been wrestling with um, is, on the one hand, while while having such a intimate relationship with your work and overwork and burnout can be very negative and you, there's a lot of um, negative feelings associated with that on the other hand there is a security and a sense of knowing who you are when you are all consumed by your work there's a um, a certain i don't know kind of like psychological ordering uh to your world when the only thing you are thinking about is is work and i see this with our with the clients that i work with a lot you know a, a lot of really corporate organizations everybody there is spending all day long in meetings and literally the experience of work is getting there in the morning going to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting and then going home and everybody complains about it, but I have done work with, with some of these clients to help them eliminate some of these meetings. And when they are left with an hour or two of unstructured time with no meeting, suddenly it's tough to know what to work on. It's tough to know what the most urgent or most the highest value thing is that you could be doing because a meeting-filled day provides you with a lot of structure you know you're just you're preparing for the next meeting or you're preparing for that next big meeting that's coming up the experience of work can can be much the same and when you don't have that if you try to try to step away from that busy um lifestyle it opens up sometimes uncomfortable questions uh for people to wrestle with
kind of the audience that I was writing for with this article uh, were people within organizations, um, leaders, senior leaders who kind of set the tone for their organizations. What I'm thinking about with what I was calling reformed workism is that well, I didn't want to tackle this issue of workism by kind of castigating people who work really hard or who are participating in this um, kind of performance, uh, performative work. And instead, I wanted to, to ask, what would it look like if we took a more meaningful approach to, to really caring about our work? So instead of caring about kind of the physical manifestation of working really hard, the long hours, that the, everything described in the Atlantic article and, and others, what would it look like if you cared about only the internal experience of working really well? For me, this is it comes out of ideas uh, like Flow um, by Dr. Csikszentmihalyi, this idea of optimal experience, which is a really internal way of noticing how you are showing up in, in the world. I just wanted to challenge myself and challenge people to stop looking um, at the what of working really hard and more on the how. So how could you bring the highest level of skill to what you are doing every day? The care that you bring to how you run meetings, to how you write emails, to how you interact with your colleagues, to how you take care of yourself outside of work. If we took off the table the option of working really, really long hours. What else could you do to really demonstrate your care uh, about doing great work? And that's what I was trying to capture with that reformed workism idea. So making the work visible, um, whether it's with metrics or, or something else to make it visible, I think can help. Something I've tried doing in the past couple of months is I really use my calendar now as a both a planning tool, as most people use calendars, but also looking back and actually just capturing my time um, and describing my time the way that I actually used it, so that when I get to the end of the week, I can you know spend 15 minutes looking back at my at my week and ask myself, what what did I do this week? Like what did I actually do? Not just how many emails did I send, but you know, what did I do Tuesday afternoon from 3.30 to 4.30? Oh, I worked on this project in this way. And I can, I can start to kind of categorize my time a little bit and I get a sense of how much of it is administrative BS that is really easy to let expand and fill the day versus how much of it is the stuff that I know is really valuable for me to, to be doing but often gets kind of pushed to the edges. And just doing that has helped me see, has helped me make that invisible work visible so that then I can at least try to make some decisions about it. I always go back to when I was a kid. I was always creating stuff, whether I was a kid just drawing or just building stuff with my hands, or as I got older into high school, just a matter of like, I want something to do outside of my job. I, I like to be able to create stuff. Would there be a void if I'm not creating something? And I, I think there would be. I, I think I would be sitting here trying to figure out, okay, you know, what am I going to do? When I was working in the company before, and it's a bit of a joke, but I think it's probably got some truth in it. The The rumor was that they hired insecure overachievers because it meant that we were constantly working, pushing ourselves. We were great at what we did. We worked really hard, but we were insecure. So we were constantly looking for external validation. And there were these, um, you know, we were ranked against each other to be rated and then get salary increases and promotions and so on. So that kind of personality means that you're constantly um, trying to do better. Social media makes that worse and it's not just work because if you look at, let's say, Facebook, you see there's always one friend who's on holiday, one's getting a promotion, one's published a book, one's earning six figures every month, one is, you know, whatever it is, one's getting married, one's having a beautiful bite baby. So if you compare yourself to the sum of that, then obviously you're behind because you can't possibly add up to everything that all of your friends are doing you should be defining what success looks like for you. So if it looks like hustling away and only working, you know, that's possible. Then in that case, as long as it's sustainable physically and you're taking care of yourself, that might be an option. Um, it might be that you want to take time off completely to look after kids or to travel or whatever it is. And that's, that's fine too. So it's up to you to decide what's meaningful success to you and what that looks like logistically as well in terms of hours, days, amount of work and salary and so on. Aside from what our employers and managers do, because they're not always going to be re as responsive as we want them to be. Can individuals 
do anything specific when they feel their lives are becoming consumed by work? Yeah, I think there are some steps they can take. It depends on whether the people are reasonably secure in having the competencies and skills to get another job. If they do, there's a lot of things they can do dead easy. They don't have to access their emails all hours God sends. They can take breaks if they want to work flexibly. By law now, if you've been working for an employer over a certain number of months, I think it's 15, I can't remember what the number of months is. By law, you have the right to request flexible working and by law, your employer has the legal obligation to tell you why you can't have it. You cut your out of office hours down, you work more flexibly, you give feedback to your employer uh, when, when they're overloading you and you won't be able to deliver on that overload, you can be, be honest about it. But you see, the difficulty with it is those people who have a skill that other employers would want can do this. If you're feeling insecure and, and you don't have the self-confidence to know that you do have a skill that the employers need and other employers could get, those people will kowtow to this. They will show FaceTime, they'll work long hours, they'll come in early, they'll stay late, they'll send emails at night to their boss to show them they're committed. Those are the people we have to worry about. There are things you can do as long as you have the self-confidence and skills to know that if it goes bad for you in the, your current employer, you can go elsewhere. Most organizations should ensure that they have the right line managers in so people are managed by people who have good EQ, emotional intelligence and social skills. We don't have enough of them. That is the big issue in the UK. Our productivity and the health of employees is dependent on our boss. I think there's a lot of things we can do to create work environments which are more humane, you know, are just human. People can work flexibly if they want to. They don't have to work long hours. They don't have to do leaveism. They don't have to feel um, devalued and demeaned and pushed. We can create those cultures and there are lots of British companies that are doing it and public sector bodies that are doing it now because they know it's right not just for the health and well-being of their employees, but for the bottom line of their company. Have you spotted the elephant in the room yet? This podcast is my side hustle. It turns out that working on something about workism is an absolute mindfuck. I'm second-guessing how long to spend on it, how much effort is or isn't enough. I've definitely procrastinated a lot more than usual. How many Jaffa Cakes could be classed as willful procrastination? I think it's six or more. One of the reasons I'm interested in cults is because I think the changing perspective is really interesting. People within the group look out at the world and see something threatening, challenging, out of step with how they want to live. People on the outside look at the cult from their perspective and see something strange and also out of step with how they live or want to live. Both perspectives think they see the other clearly for what it is, but they don't. The cult think they've got it good, they haven't. The people looking at the cult think they've got them all sussed out, they understand it, they don't. Workism has a similarly odd perspective. We look out at other people and we think we can rate their success, that they're harder workers than we are. So we should try to match them and then maybe we'll have what they have, we'll feel as fulfilled as we think they are. We let ourselves be consumed by hard work on our own specific definition of success to distract, fulfill, define, and we stay in it because it removes uncertainty and we think it can't possibly do any harm to work hard, commit, do our best. It's kind of like having a cleaning addiction. People just compliment your clean kitchen. Then other people probably look at us and think we are very together, very productive. And we're still looking around at others wondering how they do it. It's very cyclical. Our bosses, management and company cultures become our cult leaders, setting the tone for what's expected, encouraging exhaustion, rewarding exhaustion, putting a fridge full of beer in the kitchen so you don't have to leave, offering no alternative to 10pm Slack messages. When they're recruiting, they leave some subtle and not so subtle hints in the job description about how much time and attention they're going to demand. 37.5 hours often doesn't really mean 37.5 hours. Possibly more sinister, 
is how much zeal and commitment, two very culty words, we have for working ourselves too hard. For some, it's probably self-flagellation. For others, it feels like necessity. Some will fear what happens if they slow down. Your 40, 50, 60 hour a week reality can't just stop, can it? We praise ourselves for sacrificing, committing, being more committed than others, being able to tell friends how tired we are and enjoying it. We even put it on our water bottles. There's pretty much nothing on the cult checklist that isn't ticked off. Workism at its strongest covers it all. What does Derek Thompson suggest in The Atlantic? He thinks public policy needs to change, particularly in the US where things like paid parental leave are currently not a thing, even though the Atlantic piece is about is workism making Americans miserable, we're also doing pretty shit in the UK. Ultimately though, Thompson thinks we've, quote, forgotten an old-fashioned goal of working, buying free time. We're happier when we spend time with family, when we have a rest, do stuff outside of work. It's supposed to be the things that life is about. We're surely happier when we're honest with ourselves, friends, colleagues too. When we look up from what we're doing and say, I'm tired, I don't wanna be. That email I just sent was pointless. Or I did what I needed to do today, but now I'm fucking off home to watch Queer Eye and eat Pringles in a large t-shirt and stretchy leggings. But that might just be me. One thing particularly unique about this episode is that the contributors have good advice. They have tangible suggestions for anyone who feels stuck in this. We don't usually find that. So, just to recap, how hard you feel you need to work is often down to company culture. Loads of companies are shite at it, but there are some making positive changes. And sometimes, if you feel secure enough, you need to demand those changes. Being self-employed is a minefield because it gives you freedom to set your own limits but you're still the boss. Your sense of job security is a big factor and some people really don't have very much, but don't let it completely cloud your judgment. You always have options. And no one fucking knows what success looks like or feels like. You make it up as you go along. Everybody does. There's nothing wrong with working hard. A lot of good things come at the end of hard work, but it's not the key to happiness or fulfillment. Otherwise, burnout would not be a diagnosable thing. It just wouldn't. And finally, Even if your office building is on fire, or there's an imminent alien invasion, or your boss has three minutes to live, 10pm Slack messages are just rude. I cannot stress enough how interesting the sources are for this episode. So many people are writing about workism, studying it, commenting on it. It is so vital. I couldn't include anywhere near as much as I wanted to because the episode would have been about four hours long but there's loads more on the sources page about gender, class, how we define success, millennials, legislation, motherhood in the workplace, so so much. The sources are linked in the episode description below. As always the music is by Auntie Luodi and everything else is made by me, Helen McCarthy. You can find me on Twitter at Helen L McCarthy. I do very much like to hear what you think of each episode so feel free to tweet or DM me. Thanks to my contributors Max Marr, Josh Mackey, Hannah Cass, Anna Lundberg, Carrie Cooper and Sam Sperlin. Can find their details, social media, all that stuff down in the episode description too. Please review, subscribe, tell friends, whatever. I'd also like to take a brief moment to recommend a book to you. At the moment I'm reading The Dark Net by Jamie Bartlett. It's about the dark web, the origins of the internet as we know it now and as it was then. Crime, corruption, racism, all kinds of dark shit that goes on online. It's really interesting for anyone like me who thinks the internet is interesting enough to have its own anthropological study. Also the new Netflix documentary The Great Hack is essential viewing for anyone who uses the internet but fair warning it will scare the shit out of you and probably make you log out of Facebook forever. It's also just an amazing example of great journalism. If you have any book or documentary recommendations for me please tweet, email, DM, whatever. I live for that shit. 
And also just thank you in general. Thank you for listening. It baffles and thrills me that quite a lot of people enjoy this podcast and they don't just like it, they really like it. You say some very kind things, so thank you. Please send your online cult suggestions to me at that'sacult at gmail.com. I read everything. Thank you for listening. <laughs>